Well, good evening, everybody. How's it going? Good, good, awesome, good to see you guys. And uh, how many of you got my letter this week about moving around service a little bit? How many of you are here tonight because of that letter? All right, thank you. Um, go tomorrow at 8.30 instead. No, I'm just joking, I'm, just, I'm totally kidding, I'm totally kidding. What a crowd, this is awesome. No, you're all welcome here. And for those of you that did make adjustments, I, in all seriousness, how appreciative we are of you. Um, our 10 a.m. service is this, but more, okay? Imagine like walking in and not finding a seat at all and thinking about standing in the back. That's what we're dealing with at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. So there's still room to grow in this service. Thank you guys for making those adjustments. That's what I really wanted to tell you. I really appreciate it. God's doing something special in our church. Don't know if you've noticed or not, but God is doing something very special, and I am thrilled that we get to, to just do this together. It's awesome. So welcome. And if this is your first First time with us this evening. So glad that you're here. We're in a study called Origins. So if you would take out your Bibles and turn to uh, chapter 35, that's where we're going to be. Um, starting off today, we're going to be making our way all the way to chapter 39. So we're going to cover some ground tonight for sure. But uh, chapter 35 is where we're going to start. Now, last week, you hopefully you recall, if you're here, that we studied chapter 34 and chapter 35. And uh, I pointed out this was a very dark season for Jacob and his family. In fact, God's not mentioned one time in chapter 34, and it really shows because so many things went wrong in Jacob's life when they were living just outside the city of Shechem. But thankfully, there was a chapter 35, and uh, we learned all about how, how Jacob cleaned house. We learned that his house was full of idols. He got rid of all those idols and he went up to Bethel to worship the Lord. I would say that maybe a, a good phrase that would accompany the end of chapter 35 would be this, better late than never. Better late than never. That, that's how I would describe the end of chapter 35 because it took Jacob way too long to return to his father Isaac's house, but when he finally does, it's a really good thing. And surprisingly, and you might have found this as a surprise if you were reading this for the very first time recently, is that his father Isaac is still alive, believe it or not. He is still alive. And the reason why I say surprisingly is because many years earlier, and I'm talking going all the way back to Genesis chapter 27, Isaac was aging and the Bible says he was having trouble with his eyesight and he actually thought that he was near death. Do you recall this part? He thought, I, I don't know how much longer I'm gonna be alive and so that prompted him to give out the blessings. Little did he know that he was gonna live for many, many more years. He wasn't near death at all but his actions are actually gonna prompt a whole change in his family because this is when um, Jacob deceived his father took the, the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. Esau was so upset by this, he wanted to kill Jacob, and Jacob runs away. So, surprisingly, Isaac is still alive. This whole thought of that he was gonna die that set this whole thing in motion, not that I'm blaming him or anything, but he's still alive. And here we are, just to help you with the timeline, roughly 25 years later, since all of this went down, 25 years have gone by since Jacob has seen his father, he finally makes it home. Better late than never. Now here's what I find fascinating. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that reunion. There's no dialogue. We don't know what was talked about. We, we don't know anything. Really, all we know is, is Jacob makes it home. His dad's still alive. And his dad will live to the age of 180 years of age. Well, I guess we just have to be content that there's some details we'll never know because the Bible just doesn't give them to us. But there are some other details um, about these these. these uh, 
this season as he's going home. And sadly, we learn this detail at the end of chapter 35, that Rachel, his beloved Rachel, his wife that he originally worked for seven years to marry, she passes away on the journey home to Hebron to see Isaac. And she dies giving birth to their son, Benjamin. Now that's a tough loss for Jacob to, to bear, but he has another son now. His name is Benjamin, but Rachel, Rachel has passed away. And what's even heavier, what more heavy news on top of that is the tragedy that Jacob learns that one of his other wives has been unfaithful to him. And even the, more shocking than that is who she was unfaithful with. She was unfaithful with Jacob's oldest son, Reuben. So this is not a healthy situation. This is not a, a, a thing that um, we look at and go, wow, they're really getting along good, aren't they? No, 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 things, things are not going so well. But then Isaac does eventually pass away. And, and Jacob, the Bible just says, continues to live in the land of his father. And then if you jump forward to chapter 37, that kind of bridges the gap of what happened. We're up to 37 now, and there's going to be a big transition take place in this part of the Bible. Now, for the last 10 chapters of so, uh, the spotlight has been shining right down on Jacob. We've been following his story. He has been the, the dominating biblical figure in the, the book of Genesis for the last 10 chapters or so. Now, starting today, starting in chapter 37, that spotlight is going to shift, or we might say it more like this, the biblical narrative, if you will, is going to move on to somebody else. It's going to transition away from Jacob, and it's going to transition to one of Jacob's 12 sons, and that son is named Joseph. And Joseph is going to be the dominating person for the remainder of the book of Genesis. Now, let me just tell you how much so. In the final 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, Joseph will be mentioned twice as many times as his father was, Jacob was, in the previous 10 chapters. He's a very dominating figure. And I, I've told you that, that if, if, uh, if you've looked at the life group questions or you looked at the sermon notes on the app, then you're going to see that I have titled this sermon today, um, enter the hero. Now, if you've read those final 14 chapters or you're somewhat familiar with it, then you probably understand why I would call this sermon today, enter the hero. Because that's exactly what is happening. God makes this promise to Abraham, which we looked at many times that out of his family, God is building this nation that is gonna be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And, and this nation, who we know would later become the Israelites, we also know them as the Hebrews and the Jews, they would be a blessing to the whole world. And we know, because we have the rest of the Bible, that that blessing is actually a reference to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It was the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants, that bring us Jesus. But this family, and we've tracked with this in the book of Genesis, they have had a rough go. It has not been all smooth sailing at all. It doesn't always look like this amazing godly family that God is doing something tremendous through. A number of times I've pointed out even in our study through the book of Genesis that it appeared that this might just be the end of the promise. Now we know that it never was, but to the casual reading or the first time, it's like, well, maybe this is where God's promise dies. But here we are in chapter 37 and enter the hero. He might just be the hero of Genesis as I examine the scriptures. Joseph enters the scene 
And in doing so, he's gonna rescue his family and he's gonna save them. And, and really, ultimately, his actions would move towards bringing God's promise to fulfillment of raising up a nation and setting the stage for Jesus to come. Because behind this hero, Joseph, is a God who always keeps his promise. That comes through loud and clear in these final 14 chapters of Genesis. Now, as a Christian today, I can tell you one of the reasons why I really like Joseph in this story. One of them is, well, uh, there's a lot of reasons and I'll try to condense it to one, but I'm gonna give you two actually, because I just thought of it. So it's amazing what you think about when you're preaching. The thing I thought about, I didn't put it in my notes, but, but, uh, but, but Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, boy, they sure had their fair share of ups and down with God. But you don't see that with Joseph. It's all up. You know how I say that uh, you're not gonna like Jacob for a little while, but you'll like him later. You remember saying things like that? You're gonna like jo Joseph from the beginning and you're really gonna like him in the end, okay? There's none of this up and down. With Joseph, it's just straight up because the hero has entered the story. But let me tell you why I really like Joseph. It's because I think his story is maybe the greatest and deepest illustration of Jesus Christ that can be found in the Old Testament, you find a little microcosm of Jesus' story inside Joseph. Now, it's not the same, but there's a parallel. And I want to point out a couple of those things before we really unpack his story. Joseph is a lot like Jesus in this. He's loved by his father and he's obedient to his father. How many times do we read about in the New Testament when Jesus said, I must be about the will of my father, the work of my father. There is no doubt that Jesus too was obedient to his heavenly father. Joseph was hated and he was rejected by his own brother and he was sold into slavery. Jesus came to a world and his, of his own and they didn't even recognize him, they didn't want him. He also was rejected by those that should have loved him and he was abused, just like Joseph was. Joseph was falsely accused and unjustly punished. And let me tell you, Jesus too was falsely accused and unjustly punished. Finally, Joseph gets elevated from this place of suffering to this powerful throne. That's Joseph's story. Saving people, his people, from certain death. The major difference, of course, is that Joseph died, and that's the end of his story. Jesus would go on to die for the sins of the world and save the world, but he wouldn't stay dead. Three days later, he would raise to life and our Lord and Savior Jesus is alive and well today. And that's where the story is different. But let's tell you, this is a hero story of, of saving their people and it's probably the closest parallel of what Jesus did in the Old Testament. And I hope as we go through Joseph's story over the next uh, four weekends or so, that uh, you're really gonna see that. So J Joseph's story in chapter 37 really gets going when he turns 17 years old. And I'm just gonna give a few details about Joseph that we know from, that's very clear in the scripture. The first one is this, his father favored him over all the brothers. And I'm gonna tell you, that's not a good, healthy home, is it? I mean, the Bible even says that. There's no bones about it, no sugarcoating it. Jacob liked Joseph more than all of his other brothers. Now, I want you to remember this family dynamic that we've been learning about all throughout the book of Genesis. It is not a picture of family harmony. We've never accused them of being a wonderful family, and, and it really shows. I mean, when you, you have uh, two wives here, Rachel and Leah, who are, as the Bible describes them, rivals. 
all right? That can't be healthy, right? You've got a multiple wives situation and the sisters don't like each other very much and then there's two more wives that is gonna join the mix throughout the years and, and this is just gonna be an overflow of the rivalry between Rachel and Leah, not a healthy marriage scenario by any means. So here, just in case you're keeping track, we've got one father, four wives, 12 children. It's all the ingredients for good daytime talk show stuff. This is what Jacob's trying to manage. Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, was the only wife that we know about in the Bible that he really loved. And she wouldn't have any children with Jacob for many years later, long after the first three wives, or the other, or the other three wives, I should say, were having children. Joseph was the very firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So there you go. You want to know the reason for why Joseph was so highly favored in his father's eyes? That right there. It's who his mother was. It was his favorite, most beloved wife. And Joseph was his firstborn son to her. His father gave Joseph this richly ornamented robe, the Bible says. It was sometimes we call it the, the coat of many colors. It's probably one of the most well-known uh, details about Joseph's life. And even if you've never read it or you're just casually reading the Bible or just still trying to figure out what this is all about, no doubt that somewhere in your life you probably heard the phrase Joseph and the coat of many colors. In fact, when you say the word Joseph, sometimes you have to clarify, no, not Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph, the coat with the, the man with the coat of many colors. That's how we decide that we decipher these two things. You know, you didn't hear this from me, but my wife Kirsten's favorite musical on the planet is hands down Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat starring Donny Osmond. How many of you seen this thing, okay? Hands down, it's, and, and don't ever tell, is she in here? I don't know, she was here earlier. You pretend like I never told you this, all right? She knows every song in this musical and she can sing it on command acapella, and she does, <laughs> often and loudly. Now, whether she'll admit it or not, but when she was in high school, she went into Chicago six times to watch this musical in person at the Chicago Theater. You ask her about it, but you didn't hear it from me, all right? But all I'm saying is, you don't have to read Genesis to have ever heard of Joseph and his coat of many colors. And, and this is something that set him apart. This is uh, part of his story. And, and I just want you to know that this coat that he received, or this robe, uh, the, it, was, it was so beautiful and ornamented and colorful. And if you know anything about this time in history, colors were hard to come by, very expensive. You just didn't have this kind of stuff. But Joseph had it. And I want you to know, that his father was not trying to help his son make a fashion statement. It's, it's not a fashion statement at all. This is Jacob letting the entire family know that Joseph is the heir. That's what this is. Let there be no doubt that this is a distinction between Joseph and his brothers. Now, there were many reasons for why his brothers would be passed over as the heir of the family or to get the distinction as the firstborn son. And we've already talked about why that was a big deal. Now, there was other brothers that should have been in line culturally, like take Reuben. Reuben was the oldest brother. Society and cultural norms would have said Reuben should be the head of the family after Jacob is gone. But like I already mentioned just at the very beginning of the sermon, as they were traveling home to see his father Isaac, Reuben did a very 
unholy, ungodly thing with one of Jacob's wives. He's not getting to be heir. Then let's look at the next couple of boys. You got Simeon and Levi. They're not gonna get to be that either. It's not gonna pass on to them because they're murderers. Remember what happened at Shechem? And how upset Jacob was with those two sons? And then there's Judah, the next in line. Don't even get me started on Judah. We're not even reading chapter 38. And when you read it, you'll know why I'm asking you to read it on your own. Oh, you thought 34 was bad? Wait till you get to chapter 38. It's all about Judah, all right? Actually, we're not talking about that because I don't want to break the story of Joseph, but I am encouraging you go back and read chapter 38 on your own. It is messed up. You keep going down the line, you're going to see something about all the brothers that was unholy or unpleasing. I mean, Jacob's brothers were not wonderful guys, to be quite honest with you. So here, Joseph is going to get to be the heir. I think maybe, in, again, I'm, I'm reading into it just a little bit, but I think that, that Jacob could, in his own mind, easily justify why it needed to be Joseph. Because probably in his mind, and he's probably thinking, I always just intended to marry Rachel. I got tricked into marrying her sister Leah, and these other two women, well, pff, I just got into that. You know how it goes. <laughs> and he could have easily said, well, Rachel is, was always, I was always supposed to be just a one-woman man, you know, and... Maybe it was all said and done. Maybe I was just supposed to have two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. So Joseph, he will be my heir. Either way, uh, what's obvious in the scriptures is that Joseph is different from all of his brothers. He is their father's favorite. He is the heir. And he had this beautiful robe that kind of set him apart. His brothers saw this. And if his brothers saw it the same way as I'm describing it to you, then, then who can blame them for not having some hard feelings towards their brother? And they do. In fact, here's the exact words the Bible says. They hated him. I'll show you. Look at chapter 37, verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Boy, I'll tell you, hatred is one of those um, sins in the Bible that talks about how it leads to many other sins. Hatred spurns off that one sin right there. Boy, it opens the door for all kinds of other perverse sins. And that is definitely the case in Joseph's story. Now, just think about just a couple of the, of the more well-known verses in the Bible about hatred. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says this. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Boy, if you've read the last 14 chapters, that might just be the theme verse over the last 14 verses. Chapters, rather. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Hatred being that of his brothers. Jo Joseph, years later, will show much love towards his brothers. 1 John 2, 9 says, anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. That's pretty strong when it comes to this thing called hate, this sin. If you read Matthew chapter five, it's very, very obvious that hatred in the heart is the moral equivalent to murder. That's what it says in Matthew chapter five. Maybe one more, 1 John three fifteen. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And Joseph's brothers hated him. And their hate grew even stronger when Joseph started to have dreams. If you keep reading the beginning part of, of Joseph's teenage years, he's having these dreams. And the sum of these dreams are pretty much all condensed down to this one concept. 
I will rise up and all of my brothers will bow down to me. That's what it means. And he was foolish enough to tell him. I mean, I'll tell you, but kids, if you have a dream that shows one day your brothers and sisters, your mom and dad, everybody around you is gonna bow down to you, just keep it to yourself, all right? You wait for a better moment. Joseph, he tells them about these dreams and even his father was like, you think I'm gonna bow down to you? Boy, if they had to remember that moment years later, how that might have served them well. Well, things go for Joseph from bad to worse. Their brother's hate is about to turn into action. And that's the hard part about prolonged hatred is that it just waits for the right opportunity to act. And that's what's happening with his brothers. They, Joseph is sent out to check on his brothers. They see him coming. And that's where I want to pick up with tonight's text. Look at uh, chapter 37, verse 19. It goes like this. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, now imagine the scene. Here he comes walking up. They see him from a distance and you can't miss him because look at that jacket. You know, you cannot miss this guy coming. Verse 20, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, they said. Or he said, don't shed any blood. Throw him in the cistern here in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him. Now, Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him in the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Well, that's nice. All right. (laughs) Common sense is entering. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And I think back when I was 17 years of age and think back when you were 17 years of age, what in the world would be going through your mind if you were in that situation? A couple things that came to me as I was studying this out, you know, as we study this chapter by chapter, you'd connect some dots that maybe you don't connect if you're just studying it randomly piece by piece. One of those dots that the Lord connected for me as I was studying through this is this. When his brothers were talking about killing him, it's not like they're strangers to death. These guys have killed before. It wouldn't be their first Like I said, you know, Simeon and Levi, they murdered all the men in Shechem. What's another person? They've maybe gotten a little taste for it. I don't know. Joseph knows what they're capable of. Man, what was he thinking? What was he thinking down at the bottom of that well? There's Reuben. Reuben kind of looks like maybe a pseudo hero in this story. Hey guys, let's, you know, let's not kill him. And and he said that because he was going to rescue him and take him back to his father. Was Reuben trying to get back in his dad's good graces because of what he'd done with one of his wives before? The Bible doesn't say. I don't know. Makes sense to me. What in the world was Reuben going to say to his dad? We were going to kill him. But it's hard to say. But Joseph is taken to Egypt, sold to, as a slave. Man, what was he thinking as he was going to Egypt, knowing that, you know, I mean, who gets their freedom back after something like that? 
he gets sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar had a pretty important position for Pharaoh. So he's being taken to Potiphar. He's gonna be sold to his household. And all the while, his brothers take that beautiful coat. They tear it to shreds and they cover it in animal's blood. It's not like they can test the blood. How would his father know the difference between human blood and animal blood? It's not like he can test this stuff. And he, he just comes to the conclusion, an animal got my boy. And he's like, I'll never recover. And that's where we leave Jacob for years in this misery. But Joseph goes on to Potiphar's house, and here's the interesting thing. It doesn't take Potiphar very long to realize that there's something very special about Joseph. Now look at uh, chapter 39. Just fast forward another chapter or so. Look at verse two. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of an Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. I can tell you that the most important piece of this next section of Joseph's life is found in verse two. The Lord was with Joseph. Don't miss that. Every time we see that in Genesis, I try to point it out to you. The Lord was with Joseph. That is the most important piece in all of this next part of, of, of Joseph's life. It's no different than how the Lord was with Abraham and how the Lord was with Isaac and how the Lord was with his father, Jacob. And what is obvious to Potiphar, his master, is that the Lord is also with Joseph. And it says right there in verse three, that Potiphar took notice of this, that it was the Lord that was with him. Now, and again, this is where we speculate a little bit. Did Potiphar know that it was the God who created the heavens and the earth, that Lord? Did he make that connection? Did he understand that this is the God of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Joseph was carrying on the promise in his life? Is that the Lord he was referred to? Probably not. Egypt was a very, uh, you know, um, uh, it had all kinds of gods and they worshiped everything under the sun and the sun and the stars. They worshiped. So did he make the connection or does he connecting the reality that Joseph is not doing this all on his own? I think that's probably what it is. And maybe even Joseph told him the Lord is with me. And maybe he said, well, maybe the Lord is with you. And maybe the Lord to him was just one of thousands of gods. I, I, we don't know exactly what Potiphar really understood here. But what he did know is that his life was getting better because Joseph was in his house and it's not just Joseph who's doing it. Something is helping him along and I'm being prospered because of this. Um, it's not all that different than what Jacob experienced. Do you, again, I'm gonna go back a few years. Remember when Jacob ran away and now he's with his father-in-law Laban and do you remember what Laban, who was an idol worshiper, recognized by having Jacob in his home? Jacob said in chapter 30, verse 27, I have found, if I found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So you think about how the Lord has gone with each of these guys in this family and how the Lord has prospered them besides themselves. The Lord's, I'm with you. My eyes are on you. I'm gonna take care of you. And other people around them noticed it was obvious that God was with Joseph to those who worked closest with him. And can I ask you a question here tonight, church? This isn't a question that you need to answer. This is really a question that more is about internally pondering it in your own mind and your own heart. But the question is this. Is it obvious to those around you that God is with you? 
Now just think about that for a minute. Is it obvious to those around you that God is with you? Then maybe a different way to ask that same question would be this. To those who work closest to you, or, the li- or those who live nearest to you, or those who interact with you on a regular basis, would they have any clue at all that you are a follower of Jesus Christ today? What is very clear from, from Genesis chapter 39 is that Joseph's faith God being with him and what Joseph believed and these convictions that he had, they were visible to everybody around him. However he had lived his life, somebody noticed the difference between Joseph and everybody else in that house that he was living in. In Joseph's case, we know exactly who saw it. It was Potiphar. And so I asked this question, what is it that he noticed exactly or specifically, what is it that caught his eye? that made him say, the Lord is with that guy. My life is better with that guy. What was it about Joseph that Potiphar noticed? Was it his integrity? I mean, Joseph certainly had integrity that followed him to Egypt. He obviously had it before he got to Egypt and and we see how he lives his life. So was it his integrity that Potiphar saw. Now the reason why I say that, that Joseph had integrity before he ever got to Potiphar's house is because if you go back to chapter 37, back when we're very first introduced to Joseph, back in verse two, it, it says this about him, that, that Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. The very first thing we learn about Joseph, he brings a bad report to his dad about his brothers. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but Joseph often gets gets, gets, uh, reported as a tattletale. Have you ever heard that before? That he just went and tattletailed on his brothers, you know, and my question is, was he a tattletale when he was 17 years of age? Or was he a young man with a lot of integrity at 17 years of age? He brought a bad report to his father about his brothers. These are his half-brothers. Those are his brothers. Specifically, it's Dan and Naphtali. It's Gad and Asher. These are his half-brothers that were born to, and I don't have any better word than this, but to their father's concubine wives. Those were those four children produced by those two marriages. Was Joseph their shepherding understudy? Were they teaching him the ropes of shepherding as just a young teenager? It's hard to say. The Bible doesn't give us these details. But what did Joseph see and what did he experience out there with his brothers that would cause him to bring their father a bad report? Were they robbing their dad? I mean, these aren't upstanding citizens. Let's all admit that, right? Were they robbing their father? Were they getting too involved with the local people around the area? Did they have side dealings that their father didn't know anything about? What is it exactly that was going on that he saw out there with his half-brothers out there that caused them to, to bring a bad report where he say, dad should know about this, and if you don't own up, I'm gonna tell him. Was he a tattletale, or was he a man of integrity? There are many details that we'll just never know because the Bible does not provide them for us. But based on what happens to Joseph, after he gets sold off into slavery, 
and how he did not compromise his integrity even though it had been so easy to do, I'm inclined to believe that Joseph had integrity even as a young man and that's what drove the bad report to his fathers. He's like, dad should know about this and it's not right for you to be doing what you're doing and I'm gonna set this thing correct. I'm also inclined is that same integrity that Potiphar saw out of Joseph when he was a slave in his house. It's that same integrity that Potiphar connected to some kind of higher power. It's what he connected to Joseph's God. Your God is helping you do this. I believe, what was it specifically about Joseph that Potiphar saw? I believe it was his integrity. So the question is, is it obvious to those around you that God is with you? And how would it be obvious to those around you? Well, I think like with Joseph, I think there's a really good chance that the most obvious part of your life is your integrity. That's what people see in a world that desperately lacks integrity. That's the world Joseph was living in. That's the world that we're living in. And that is the part that is the most visible about your Christian life, in my opinion. Psalm chapter one, the very first verse, the very first couple verses in the whole book of Psalms goes like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the, in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditate on this law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. God was with Joseph. God prospered Joseph, just like it says in Psalms. The overflow of God's presence and his blessing in Joseph's life, it positively impacted other people around him. And that is what Potiphar noticed. I am a recipient of a blessing because you are a man of integrity. Believe it or not, there's people around you that are the recipient of your integrity, whether they ever admit it or not. And they say, see things about your life as a Christian today, whether you ever utter the name of Jesus in their presence or not. Well, of people in that house that took notice of Joseph, it wasn't just Potiphar. The Bible tells us that Potiphar's wife took great interest in Joseph. And the Bible tells this little detail. The Bible says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. So I can relate. Yeah, can't you? I can relate, yeah. Yeah, so, jo so Joseph was a GQ model. He can't help it. He was born that way. But she noticed that about him. And the Bible tells us that Potiphar's wife wanted to be with this young, well-built, handsome man who was serving in her house. And the Bible tells us, you keep reading, that there's several details here, but she repeatedly invited Joseph to be intimate with her. But good on Joseph, he would have nothing to do with her. Now let's see how Joseph finally responds to her many requests. Look at, uh, jump down to verse nine of chapter 39. He rejects her, obviously, and he says, no one in, is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. 
because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Did you hear Joseph's answer? Do you hear this deep level of integrity in his life? That if he had accepted her repeated request, that it would be sitting against God. Where did this conviction inside of Joseph come from? Because let's face it, his father is not a great example of purity in this part of his life. Where does this come from? Where do these convictions come? If I had to guess, and I'm totally making a guess here, Potiphar's wife is not sore on the eyes, if you know what I mean. You know, she's very wealthy. She can pretty much have whatever she wants, and she probably doesn't deprive herself of any luxuries available to her. She's probably exercised every beauty technique under the sun. She's probably not bad looking. And yet Joseph said no, and he could have easily, easily justified this. Now think about it. He's a young man. He's unattached, taken from his father, and his father thinks he's dead. You know, that, that's enough for somebody to go, my life is ruined, why not? Sold into slavery by his brothers. Why not? I'm a slave. I'm gonna be a slave for the rest of my life. Why not indulge just a little? I think he could have so easily justified those actions. I mean, he could have said, here's a beautiful woman. No one's ever gonna know. I think I deserve this. Friends, I'm just gonna tell you something. We have to always be on guard and not allow ourselves to talk ourselves into sinning. I think it's easy, especially when life's just not going all that good, or maybe you've just hit a hard part of your marriage, or maybe you just lost your job, or maybe finances are tough. You say things just aren't going all that good, and maybe your home's not as happy as it used to be. And to talk yourself into doing something very foolish as if you deserve it. So, you know, I tell you, there's an incredible example here of a young man expressing great integrity. And he had no reason to, other than he believed in God. And he knew that God was with him. Just so you know, I could build an entire sermon series on purity, resisting temptation and integrity all out of Joseph's experience in Potiphar's house. You know that, right? I could build a whole six-week sermon series just out of these few verses. I'm not going to right now, uh, maybe down the road. We're not gonna take the time to do that in our Origins series, but I do wanna point out a couple really key aspects of Joseph's integrity that we should really, really dwell upon. If you exhibit them in your own life, I think it's gonna be really obvious to those around you that God is with you. The first one is this. What did Joseph say? What did he know about Potiphar's wife? That she is another man's wife. So what is Joseph actually saying? I will not cheat. That, that's, you simply put it like this. This is a declaration on Joseph's part. I will not cheat. I can cheat. Everybody says I probably should cheat. Why not? I've been cheated, but I will not cheat. That's a huge, big piece of Joseph's integrity. What else? What else? He, he was trusted by his master, and he didn't want to violate that trust. You know what he's really saying? I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to steal. 
You boil it down to singular words that we'll understand very well. I'm not gonna cheat. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna steal. And then what was the third part of this integrity that he shows? Basically, he says, even if nobody ever finds out, God will know. I'm not gonna disappoint God. And you think about this, just boil it down. What does his integrity look like that everybody else can see? I'm not gonna cheat, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna steal, and I am not gonna disappoint God by doing any of those things. How did Potiphar's wife take this rejection? Really well, actually. No, not well at all. I think she is a woman that's used to getting what she wants. This is what happened. Look at verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and no one of the household servants was inside, which I believe was planned, by the way. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. You realize what it is. She's literally, not trying to be crude, she's ripping his clothes off and he runs away. That's, that's, that's all, that's what happened. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Man, is he getting in trouble again for something he didn't do. She kept his cloak beside her until her master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Do you know most of the time, running away from something is viewed as cowardly? You know that? Um, the idea of fleeing goes against every hero story that you've ever read. Like if you watch an incredible documentary about the military or incredible military movie, they don't make movies about soldiers who run away. They make, they make movies about heroic soldiers that run to the battle. You, you watch a movie today, they don't make movies about superheroes that run away from anything. No, they make movies about heroes that face their enemy and they charge ahead. But you know what? In Joseph's case, fleeing was the most heroic and godly thing he could have ever done. Fling is actually quite courageous inside of Potiphar's house. And it is the most dramatic display of Joseph's character in his young life. And that is fling. Spiritually speaking, when it comes to our, our faith, fling is the best thing that you could ever do. That's what the Apostle Paul told a young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, you know what he said? Flee from the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with, the, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And I wonder, is there anybody in our, in our room today that's still trying to figure this one out? The heroic movement of fleeing in your spiritual walk with Christ. I don't know how the devil divides up all of his time or how he divides up the time of his demonic cohorts. But by the looks of things in our world, he is heavily invested in the lack of purity department. Joseph understood and practiced fleeing long before the New Testament was even written to teach us things like 1 Corinthians 6.18 
It says, church, flee from sexual immorality. Run away. I don't know if you've connected this dot or not when we were reading or when you were reading the story of Joseph on your own or even here. But do you realize that that this is now the second time that Joseph has lost his clothes? (laughs) Do you know that? If not, I'm just pointing it out to you. This is the second time Joseph has lost his clothes. The first time is when his brother stripped him of his beautiful robe and they used it to deceive their father. And now he was stripped again, this time of his cloak. And those clothes were used to deceive his master. But you know, I tell you, Joseph may have been stripped of his clothing multiple times but he was never stripped of his integrity. That's a huge piece of his story. She told her husband that Joseph tried to take advantage of her. Potiphar was so mad, he throws Joseph in jail because he has the authority in Pharaoh's house to do that. And that's where Joseph will stay for the next couple of years. But let's finish this up. Look at verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Now, isn't this interesting? It's the same theme. It's the same important detail. Whether he is in a cistern, whether he is in Potiphar's house, whether he is in jail, the Lord is with him while he was there in prison. And the, and the Lord showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So this is totally the same situation all over again. Only it's not Potiphar's house. It's the prison warden that notices something about Joseph that's different. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. You may not have connected the dot, but this, the, this chapter of the Bible ends or begins and ends the exact same way. It's just a different context. Joseph was put in charge of all of Potiphar's house and Potiphar never even concerned himself with anything. And now he's in prison. He gets put in charge of the whole prison and the prison warden thought nothing of it. Why? Because God was with him. Friends, there's so many wonderful truths in these two chapters and I feel like in our time together this evening, we barely touched the surface. I'm gonna trust you, you're gonna read it on your own. But just real quickly before we're done, there's two glaring truths from this part of the Bible. One, God was with Joseph and he is with you. And the world will see it. It will be obvious to the world when you live a life of integrity. I'm not gonna cheat. I'm not gonna steal. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna do anything that displeases God. The world will see that. Second truth is this, faithful living and integrity pleases God every time. Not sometimes, every time. Faithful, living, life filled and marked by integrity because of a conviction to obey God that pleases our Heavenly Father. And I do believe that God will absolutely take care of you. I absolutely believe that God will point, guide, and lead and prosper you when necessary to fulfill his purposes. I believe it begins in our hearts. Living a life of integrity, it pleases God. I hope you see these truths as clearly as I do in this very early, early stage 
of Joseph's life. Lord, I just thank you for Joseph's story. I thank you for your holy word, what it teaches us. As always, Lord, we thank you for that. Where would we be, Lord, without your holy word today? Lord, I pray you help us to exhibit some of the same characteristics that Joseph had when it comes to integrity. Lord, I pray you help us see our situation no different, whether that situation feels like the bottom of a cistern or it is slavery to an employer or whatnot. Lord, may we live for you in upright holiness and integrity. And Lord, even in those moments when we think, I deserve this. Lord, of course we know we don't. We say, I deserve this and no one will ever know. Why can't I just get some from myself? Lord, it's in those moments that we pray for even more protection than usual. Lord, I pray you guard our hearts and our minds from thinking that way. Help us to be like Joseph who said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my Lord? Oh God, please help us to have that awareness in all walks of our lives. Lord, help us to live that way every day as we look forward to your second coming. Lord, no one walked this earth more integrity-filled than you did all the way to the cross in which you allowed yourself to be sacrificed. You shed your blood for our sins, taking on our sins, opening heaven's doors, Lord, to us, people who are sinners and could not do anything about that sin without you, but you did it for us. Lord, help us to live in such a way of such great appreciation for your saving grace on that cross. Of course, Lord, while we wait for your return, we'll praise you. We'll praise you for raising from the dead and being alive and well to this day and being in our lives. So Lord, we lift up your holy name tonight. Lord, help us to learn what it is that you'd have us to learn from your scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.